I'm Todd Bogenschutz. I'm the Upland Game Biologist for the Iowa DNR, and this is the Prairie Farm Podcast. I'm Doug Duran, a landowner trying to be a conservationist. I'm Tabitha Panis, president of the Iowa Prairie Network. I'm Ryan Callahan, director of conservation at Meat Eater. Angela from X and Root Homestead. Chris Helzer, the Nebraska director of science for the Nature Conservancy. Judd McCollum from Working Class Bowhunter. Taylor Keene, founder of Sacred Seed. Ryan Bryson of Bryson Wildlife. This is Luke Fritch. This is James Holtz. Joy Van Weingarten. Sam Sobold. Phil Ebert. Julie Meachin. And you are listening to the Prairie Farm. The Prairie Farm. Prairie Farm. Prairie Farm. Prairie Farm Podcast. Prairie Farm Podcast. Welcome to the Prairie Farm Podcast. Well, I am uh, tickled today. I think I say that on a few of our intros because uh, it's really been one of the best parts of this job. Being tickled um, regularly? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> usually tickled through laughter, something oh, Nick, okay. something ridiculous Nick says on our drive to a podcast or something. But no, I'm tickled because Todd is a guy I've known for several years now, and we've done a couple podcasts um, on a, another podcast that I host, uh, uh, but I've never gotten to meet Todd in person, and uh, today we're up here at the Iowa, do we, is it called the Wildlife Research Station? Is that, is that yep, the name the of Boone it? Wildlife Research Station. Yep, and it's a beautiful place. There's all I'll take some pictures to to post so you guys can see some of the cool stuff they have here decorating the office. But it's really a a nice testament to uh, the hard work that all these people in this office put in every year, year after year, to protect the uh, natural uh, resources that we have here in Iowa, especially from a wildlife standpoint. We like to call ourselves the Whitetail State, and uh, you, you don't have to look far to find out why when you're in this office. There's some really impressive uh, specimens up, up on the wall. And uh, Todd showed some uh, pictures of nice deer that he harvested this year, but also a lot of his colleagues as well working for the state um, that they were able to harvest. And uh, just a, a, a really cool thing to see um, that resource and how the people that work to preserve them, how closely uh, intertwined they are their their passion is very evident so i think uh i think you're doing the right job and you're doing a good one todd well you know it's kind of career path i took i knew i wasn't going to get rich but i always love the outdoors so <laughs> yeah can't uh you know can't complain about this job it's usually what i work on daily so yeah that's well nick and i talk about it all the time on the podcast when you're a conservation-minded person, you see value beyond the dollar. And so uh, there's there's things I'm sure about your job, not that any job is perfect. Every job has its challenges and its hard days and its bad days. But there's a lot of good days and a lot of uh, good things that you get to enjoy when you're working within your area of passion. And money can't buy that. That's absolutely true. Yep. So... No, we're we're uh, so happy to have you. I actually first met Todd through email uh, back in 2020. My wife and I were uh, leaving uh, our now house. We were visiting my grandparents. We moved into the, my grandparents' uh, old farmhouse, and um, we were uh, driving back home down this gravel road, and we saw this critter out in the road about oh maybe. 100 yards max probably not even 100 yards probably more like 70 yards in front of us and uh you know you see all kinds of critters when you're out driving iowa's countryside but this one was different and uh it all of a sudden started to 
bound like a kangaroo bounds. And it was right at the same time that uh, Tiger King came out on Netflix. <laughs> and and uh, um, I thought, maybe somebody's got like an exotic farm around here that I didn't know about. And they have like an escaped wallaby or something. Uh, but uh, no, it was uh, it then like dawned on me, you know, uh, that's a jackrabbit. And so my wife is like, what is that? You know, we're, we're, we're staring at this thing. And, uh, you know, of course you try to creep closer and, you know, he catches on and down into the, down to the weeds are so fast, you know? And, and, uh, I, so I said, you know, that I knew that jackrabbits were native to Iowa, but I knew that they aren't very prevalent at all anymore. And, uh, especially in that part of the state. And I thought, you know what, I wonder if there's a way to report a sighting for one of these. Sure enough, I was like, wow, there's a link right here. You just click this and it sends an email and that email goes to Todd Bokenschutz here, the state upland biologist here for Iowa. And, uh, Todd got back to me and asked if I had any pictures. Of course I didn't. And, and so he had to take me <laughs> at my, he had to, yeah, he had to take, take my Sasquatch. Well, don't feel sighting. bad. I don't get a lot of pictures, <laughs> but you know, if they describe it correctly and you how, know, I, I how use, often do you get one? Um, so our, uh, our, uh, kind of our web person down in Des Moines that does our posts for like Facebook and Twitter, um, Jesse Brown wanted to do a story on jackrabbits, and I'm I'm like, yeah, that's great. Most people don't realize we still have some, and mm-hmm, yeah. So she just did a little, you know, Facebook post. Those things can't be real long or anything, and you know, I got a flood. I bet you I got probably a dozen or more reports, wow. like in the week right after that. People from Northern Iowa and stuff, which is great. I mean, because we occasionally pick them up on the deer surveys. We do pick them up on the roadside surveys. Mm-hmm. Usually if my staff see them or County Conservation Board, you know, folks will think about it and, and send it to me. And so usually I just, with today, with Google Maps and everything, I'm like, mm. hey, drop yeah. a pin yep. where you saw it, send it to me. I collect that XY. And so just kind of keep that store just so we kind of have a record because there's a lot of people out there. So, yeah, I had a couple uh, farmers on combines, you know, they kicked one up when they were planting in the spring, and, you know, they took a picture and sent it to me. I'm like, yep, that's a jackrabbit. And wow. So, yeah, I just kind of keep a running tally. You know, it's nothing really formal about it. Um, just, you know, people know about it and, and know I kind of collect it. I just keep tabs on it. And so... We've had the folks at Iowa State University do a little bit with it, and mm-hmm. so I'm kind of hoping maybe with some of that data, though, they might be able to take it and do some resource selection stuff with it. We might be able to do something with it even. So, yeah, it's kind of cool. To, I mean, I've, I've gotten some phone video of uh, a gentleman up in north-central Iowa just must have come out on his porch. Here's a jackrabbit on the edge of his yard, and he wow. turned the camera on, and it came hopping right up beside the porch and wow. then walked right around. I mean, just perfect video. I'm like, that's pretty cool. Yeah, definitely. Not, not a that lot of people really cool. see that anymore. So Yeah. You know, I've always wondered how on earth, and, and you showed me after I gave you that data, you plotted it on the map, and uh, you there was one other sighting in uh, – jasper county which was the neighboring county to where i live and you um you said you know well it's definitely possible because we've had this previous but with a population that's so sparse like that i mean how on earth do you think it could you know 
be distributed down into my county like that i i mean they seek out habitat it it is part of their former range so it's just a matter if there's enough inner you know individuals that you know can can meet and breed you know and carry it on the challenge is if they start getting isolated and we're only talking a handful of individuals it's mm-hmm. just inbreeding and then just mortality in itself it yeah. You know, so we're seeing the range shrink back up. You know, there are there are pretty cool critter looking back at the history. I mean, at settlement, um, prior to settlement, I think we, you know, the records kind of indicate they were probably most, mostly northwest Iowa. That's where we had the biggest bison herds. I mean, we had bison throughout the state, but that's where they really dominated, kind of mm-hmm. like people think of when you see it on TV, you know, the big herds that were out in the plains. We yeah. didn't have that. You know, but we still had a fair, and we think they were associated with that because the bison grazed it down. They like short veg, so you know our tall grass prairie is really too tall for them. But mm-hmm. when you have bison, you know, I tell people think of, you know, wild kingdom, and when you see the things over there in Africa and the plains yeah. and all the wildebeest, well, that was the same effect over here with bison at the time. So, but when we started settling the state, you know, and extirpated bison, what we had is you know white settlers come in with cattle. And then they started converting a lot of the tall grass prairie into small grains and hay. Mm-hmm. Well, just human activity kept a lot of shorter grassy vegetation. And so actually jackrabbit populations expanded across central oh. Iowa all the way into Illinois mm-hmm. because wow. of human yeah. you know, interventions and the way we were using the landscape then. But, you know, things things always change, you know, mm-hmm. as we've gone away from, you know, using horses to farm and everybody having cattle, you know, when that yeah. kind of dynamic went away, we started going to tractors and things. We didn't need hay. We didn't need small grains because we weren't feeding horses anymore, didn't mm-hmm. need the pastures. You know, then we kind of go to this corn bean rotation that we're in today, and that doesn't provide really any habitat for jackrabbits. So that's why we've mm-hmm. kind of seen the Wow. So jackrabbits probably did this with settlement and then now they're kind of. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That, that is one of my favorite ecological relationship stories that I've ever heard. That was, it was so, in fact, I used to teach uh, biology and I, in my AP biology course, one of my last years of teaching, my son loves this book series called tractor Mac and uh there's this it's it's a very well done series i think the guy interestingly enough who who writes it billy steers is his name uh is i think he's from new england but he just has you know a heart for agriculture and and you know farm history kind of that kind of that norman rockwell era mm-hmm. uh, paul harvey era of of farming and so he works that into all of his books and he wrote this one book in the series called tractor Mac comes to the farm and it, it described from an agricultural side, that whole replacement time period of everyone had these workhorses. And if you're listening you, and you heard what Todd said, you might be thinking, well, what about soybean fields? Those are really short when they're harvested, but it's the growing season difference that, you know, soybeans mm-hmm. are in the field you know, throughout the summer into th- through much of the fall in a lot of places too, maybe even the winter before they get harvested. Whereas oats and, and, uh, a wheat, that's a summer harvest. And so they're not, that stand isn't there as long. And so when people had those workhorses, you know, like Todd said, you had to feed them Well, in the book tractor Mac 
comes into the scene and the whole story is about how this horse is feeling so replaced by this shiny new tractor and uh course you know it's a children's book so at the end the horse saves the day when tractor mac gets stuck in the mud and he has to pull the tractor out with you know the old workhorse does but uh you know it really painted that picture it totally changed everything um through that evolution of farming and uh to then see that ebb and flow of jackrabbit populations just just fascinating yeah you know human development actually favored them there initially when you know settlers started taking over and Mm. you know if if you look at our cropping records, 1950, 1960, even still, um, we were still a corn oat hay rotation. Mm. Like half the state was corn and oats, and the other half was basically corn. That was kind of our rotation. Mm. So, I mean, hay and small grains, as you described, they're a summer harvested crop, June, mm-hmm. July. So they aren't, you know, and then they're short the rest right. of the year, which is ideal for jacks. Mm-hmm. And it was way more nutritious. I mean, just, you know, the fact yeah, that it was true. an ag commodity hmm. and you still had all the pastures sprinkled in there because, you know, I had to keep the horses and cattle mm-hmm. somewhere. And so it was probably as ideal as it gets for jackrabbits in that regard. Um, but, you know, like you said, as tractors kind of came on the scene and more efficient equipment, um, you know, soybeans kind of elevated. They're more profitable. Um, didn't need the pastures because you didn't have the animals. Beans more profitable than small grains. Mm-hmm. We just kind of, from the 60s, you can see if you plot it, I mean, it just plummets, mm. you know, to where by the end, by 79, you know, we'd almost flip-flop. Yeah, seen virtually none of those habitats anymore. Yep. Our, uh, our boss, I guess you'd say the guy who, uh, founded Hoxie native seeds, he told me about how, when he was growing up and so he's on the same farm that, you know, he spent his whole life on. And, uh, he talked about how there used to be jackrabbits all over the place when he was a kid. And, uh, probably right about that same time that you just mentioned there Mm -hmm. in the seventies, he said, I think around gone. 81 he started farming is that's when he took over from his dad i believe but i mean he was he was farming through the all of his growing up years oh yeah yeah no 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 and and so he yeah he was hanging out so he would have started farming right about the time that corn and beans took over and and jack you know what i mean so and and so before he was a kid hanging out and then all of a sudden that is interesting i wonder if that has anything to do with it as he, like right as that pivotal moment's happening right around 80 and the corn just booms, you know, and, and he said, in his, in his words, everyone went mad and ripped up every pasture that they had. Mm-hmm. Um, and cause corn hit like $3 or something. And, and I wonder if part of the reason he went into Prairie was because he had this, like, now this isn't what I signed up for as a kid. Farming was like this. And then as soon as he got into it, it totally changed. And I wonder if there's anyone else, you know, that feels that way. Yeah. You know, that's a, it's an interesting generation, you know, that Carol's kind of at the tail end of that generation. My grandfather would be probably the older part of that generation where they had a lot of the old ways when they were first get, you know, around farming. And then by the time they were, you know, full into operation and, you know, for my grandpa's sake, retiring and Carol's sake, hitting his stride and, and farming things had changed 
so much, you know, almost like the medical field type of change, you know, after germ theory was discovered, you know, it's like, yeah, we should probably wash our hands before we do surgery. You know, it's, it's kind of like that revolutionary. Once you start having all this equipment and fossil fuels started to be the main energy source on a farm, you know, it just totally, uh, totally transformed, not just how things were done on the farm, but how the land looks. And so, and we're, we're going to jump into that here in a little bit, but we need to finish introducing our guests first. We're getting, to, we're getting into the such good. We introduced jackrabbits before. That's we right. That's right. Guests. Hey, they're more important than me anyway. <laughs> no, uh, Todd is a Todd is a friend of mine, and and uh, just have thoroughly enjoyed talking with him through the years. Um, he does work as a wildlife biologist. He's done that his whole career, if I remember correctly. Um, uh, can you talk a little bit about how? So I'd kind of like you to answer two things at once here kind of describe to how describe to us how your career has developed into what it is but then maybe while you're doing that explain how you know maybe you know i got a teacher's heart here if a if a student is listening who wants to get into wildlife biology uh what what that commitment looks like you know a lot of traveling around a lot of taking whatever's available for jobs that kind of thing yeah, so sure. So, so yeah, my name is Todd Bogenschutz. I'm the Upland Game Biologist for the Wildlife Bureau of the Iowa DNR. So Upland, Upland Game are those critters that we basically don't find in wetlands and we don't find in forests. So pheasants, quail, cottontail, Hungarian partridge, um, jackrabbits are kind of, you know, the species that I'm tasked with documenting and and uh, you know assisting our staff with management. So those are the critters. But I do get involved with some other things like... Um, Prairie chickens, you know, we've got a small introduced population in Iowa, so I help some of our non-game staff with those. And then, um, you know, I, um, you know, we have forest people that work on turkeys and rough grouse, and so I do a lot of work with birds, and that's a lot mm-hmm. of my background, so I assist them with those projects too. But, yeah, that's kind of what I do uh, for the agency. Um, as far as, you know, how did I get where I am? I mean, just, you know, passion growing up. You know, my dad liked to hunt and fish, and so... You know, I grew up in that kind of kind of family setting, mm-hmm. and so he waterfowl hunted a lot. And uh, you know, at the time in the '60s, '70s, uh, you know, when my dad was kind of starting his family and stuff, deer were not super abundant. They were just coming back to a lot of the country, and turkeys mm. were unheard of. So, what did everybody hunt? Mm. Basically, everybody hunted small game and waterfowl for the most part. Huh. So That's interesting. That's kind of where I cut my teeth, chasing rough grouse and squirrel and cottontails, and then, you know, going duck and goose hunting with my dad. And mm-hmm. so I was kind of, I'm like, this would be cool. This would be cool if I could work on this stuff. Because, you yeah. know, as you're coming, as a kid coming up through high school, you know, you're looking at, well, what do I do? You know, computers were just coming on. You know, I graduated high school in 1985 and had a friend that was like, man, this is going to be big money. We need to get into this. And, you know, so I actually took a programming, computer programming course in high school. So, like, oh, wow. 1983. Wow. Like, I took Pascal, the programming <laughs> language, you know, before I even graduated. And so when I got into college i was like well you know i still like the science stuff but i really like playing with computers too and so i took a couple of kind of split my major mm-hmm. so to speak to kind of wasn't sure you that know, is like, so that is not a combination you hear very often <laughs> yeah. well, computer I mean, you know, science and and uh <laughs> wildlife yeah. yeah yeah so so anyway you know as it turned out you know i i did take some programming languages a bunch more languages basic fortran and then i got into what they call assembly language which is like hex code and stuff and 
I started not getting so good at grades in that, but I was still doing good in the science stuff. And I'm like, well, grades are pointing me that way. So that's yeah. kind of, you know, I kind of took a lot of the biology classes. And then uh, when I finished undergrad, I got some job offers at labs and those kinds of things, but not really related to wildlife per se. It was more just the science biology side mm-hmm. of it. So. I did an internship there. So I grew up in upstate New York on the Canadian border. And so grew up fishing and and basically hunting that kind of area, which is, I would describe it probably similar to like Wisconsin's Dells kind of area. Upstate New York is kind of similar like that on the Canadian border, big dairy. And so I worked on farms growing up and we had a small farm. And so got a job with them as an internship and, you know, really fell in love with it got kids from new york city coming up and you know i I was always surprised they'd come out and they'd get out of the bus and just roll all over in the grass you know me being a country (laughs) kid i'm like what are they doing and you know the chauffeurs that came with the kids are like they've never seen this much grass in one spot and i'm like oh my god you're kidding me yeah Yeah. Yeah, that is that's almost sad to to consider well that disconnect yeah yeah oh yeah i have um i have a cousin she lives in L.A., and I mean, like, middle of L.A., you know, there are no yards out there, and she came out to our farm for a wedding, and she was, like, one of the greatest moments of her whole life. She was, like, listing off a few of them, She's, and it was up there with, like, some pretty crazy, awesome moments in her life, and one of them was, like, going on a jog around you guys' farm, and I was like, what's so great about her farm? It's just, <laughs> it's just the farm, man, <laughs> you know? Oh, man, but yeah, I mean, just people who who just don't know, you know, it's so crazy to them. Like to us, the spiders in Australia are crazy. Yeah. But to people, but you know, it's people in Australia. They're like, whatever. All right, Nick, you got to tell that story now. <laughs> I'm trying to, I'm trying to remember. So we were at Pheasant Fest recently and this guy that we met, um, was from Australia and, and, it, and we did not ask him to say, hello, Mike. <laughs> we did not. <laughs> and we wanted I, to. We and, did and nobody asked you to say it just now either. <laughs> It's just so fun. <laughs> oh, I can't do accents. But I, but we couldn't resist, and we had to ask him about their the spi- legendary well, we spiders. Well, we had like a 30-minute. It was during the slowest part of the whole thing, and he was just hanging out. And I wanted to cool be like, guy. what's an Australian doing here at Pheasant Fest? But, uh, so he had a whole backstory, and he was like, and we asked him about the spiders. And he's like, I feel like that's way over, uh, over. Like, there's, it's... I mean, I have been bitten 20 times, but it will, like, <laughs> what? it's like, that's exactly what we're talking about. Yeah, but he's like, you know, you just get trained on it. You get trained to like knock your shoes before you put them on, no matter how small of a time it's been. And I yep. don't know. Anyway, sorry. I interrupted. No, your it's a, it was, story. it was, that was a great, that's a great comparison though, Nick, you know, I, and we talked about this with uh, Lord to cook, how, uh, people have this natural draw to nature you know it's it's that phrase right there you know use the word nature twice and it's because we're intertwined with with the world around us you know we're a part of the ecosystem although i would say that our relationship with our ecosystem has changed very much very much so through time but we're still a part of it and and uh you know, uh, everyone longs to to have that connection. I think, but no, that's that's cool. And the Adirondacks, I have driven through that region once. My in laws are from uh, New England, and uh, we went up to uh, Lake Champlain 
for a vacation one year and it just kind of took me on a different route to get to that part of Vermont and um, took us right through the Adirondacks. That is an ancient place. Oh, yeah. I mean, people don't, you know, people think of New York, you know. uh, So when I went to grad school, I ended up out in South Dakota because I kind of, upland birds were my thing. I did a little bit of pheasant hunting in New York, did a lot of rough grouse hunting. The pheasant hunting was mostly put and take type stuff. Sure. It wasn't like, because there wasn't really a wild population Mm -hmm. that was good enough to hunt there were some wild birds but most of it was put and tag but you know i just got enamored with kind of the upland birds and so when i finally decided that you know i didn't want to work in a lab somewhere i wanted to be more like the outdoor type biologist and Mm -hmm. so i just started applying out here south dakota montana kind of out here in the core range of dakotas and was lucky enough to get a a pheasant uh, master's project at South Dakota State University and so that's kind of what brought me out here to the Midwest but um, yeah you know you know when I got to South Dakota people are like well you don't have an accent like you're from New York City I'm like (laughs) well there's a lot more to New York than this that's like way down here (laughs) I know nine million people live on top of each other but the rest of the state as people do the other (laughs) 20,000 kind of live spread out (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, and, you know, as I told people, I'm like, the Adirondacks are, you know, it's advertised as six and a half million acres of mountains with hardly any development in it. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a pretty cool region. You know, mm-hmm. it's mostly forested, obviously, because it's mountains. But, um, yeah, it's, I love growing up there. Grew up on the St. Lawrence River, Lake Ontario right there. So did a lot of fishing, salmon fishing, musky fishing, you know, of course, perch and northerns and bass and so you know my grandfather was born on an island in the middle of the river oh that is cool um, you know we still have a family camp there and so i mean i just took it for granted i'm like this is where everybody lives isn't it you know yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. man so. that sounds beautiful as you're going through i mean the things that you're mentioning academically just casually your art i'm sure were very informational for you and and, and very um educational you know education but and then you're you're listing just lifestyles that you, not that you didn't have a choice, but you like you didn't choose that. Your your grandparents or your parents just kind of like this is our lifestyle. But if if someone like let's say someone grows up in Des Moines, but they just love nature, they like feel it calling, and they're like, I want to be some sort of state biologist or something like that. What now that you have like authority and 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 let's say you were going to hire someone, what things are you looking for in? younger people that want to get jobs in in the field i mean you know growing up so you know it it doesn't have to be anything that specific you know growing up i always had ranger rick loved to Mm, read those types of things you know and then i did bird feeders in the backyard you know i can remember when i was an undergrad in new york there um you know i kind of switched from computer science the first two years to more of the biology the last two years and and i was doing work study Mm-hmm. You need somebody to do things in the lab, clean up the stuff after class and stuff. So, you know, struggling college kid, I'm like, any money I can get, especially <laughs> if it's related to what I want to do, you know. Yeah. So took that. And so we were doing some bird feeding. And, you know, I was commenting on the birds outside the window. And the the uh, technician that was kind of in charge of the lab, she's like, how do you know those birds? And I'm like, I don't know. I guess, you know, we had bird feeders when I was a kid. And I always filled them up every morning, and I mean, just mm-hmm. got the bird books. I mean, you see the birds yeah. coming in, and I mean, you just you say it so doesn't casually. Do that? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> She's like, "Wow, I don't know that many birds." I'm like, "Well, I can't say it's a formal course, but I mean, just 
I mean, I started feeding birds when I was like 10 years old. You know, we had bird feeder on the deck, just something that, you know, yeah. everybody liked to do, get the different birds coming in. You just had the bird books there when something new come in, you know, yep. kind of like. So, yeah, I mean, that just a, a passion for it. You know, I, I can remember visiting with my dad and, you know, you get to the end of high school and you're going to graduate. And I was like, well, what do you want to do? And, you know. And, you know, I was telling my dad, I'm like, well, I don't know. I mean, I love hunting and fishing, but um, he's like, well, you can, you know, pursue a path that, you know, kind of works in that field and maybe you won't make a lot of money. I mean, if you want to make a lot of money, maybe you go do something that you don't really care about, but it gives you enough money to go do the things you like to do. And he's Mm -hmm. like, you got to make that decision on what you want to do. And so, you know, I kind of, <laughs> I looked at yeah. the computers, I'm like, oh, there could be a lot of money there. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> you know, but then this is the stuff I really liked and it's just the way it worked for me. So it's kind of the way I went. And so, I mean, as far as the seasonals that I've hired and stuff, um, you know, I generally look for folks that have a passion. To me, you got to kind of have the passion. That's what drives, mm-hmm. yeah. I think, anybody. You've got to oh, have yeah. an interest in it. Yeah, yeah, no one's jumping in the DNR for money. Like, you know, I'm yes, going to make a full exactly. financial career. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, you, you know, we make a living, but yeah, you're not going to yeah. get rich working for the DNR. So, you're mm-hmm. going to get rich, you got to run your own business. But um, basically, I look for those those students that kind of have, have kind of given a broad um, thought to their coursework. So, I mean, the biology side is good, but, you know, a lot of the things we do today, we do a lot of stuff with computers. We do a lot of stuff with GIS, which is mm-hmm. like digital mapping. Mm-hmm. Yep. You know, those are just the technologies we use. I mean, there's a fair bit of stats that we do. And so I just kind of look, you know, where are those students that kind of were actually thinking about that rather than just taking classes to take classes, you know, and how can I get through yeah. it? So mm-hmm. if they've got any work experience, um, that's great. Um the last gal that worked for me last year, um, she was actually born and raised in Colorado. More of the, I don't know that she ever, well, I know she didn't, I don't think she's ever hunted and fished. She just likes outdoors, mountain mm. biking and stuff. And so she had worked for the Iowa Natural Heritage Foundation the previous year, you know, working in the summer, doing chainsaw stuff in the Les Hills. Yeah. You know, that was her first experience. She loved it. Yeah, yeah. And I'm like, okay, well, you know, I'm looking for somebody to help me with some of our pheasant quail counts and that kind of stuff. Our roadside survey, I said, a lot of this stuff is GIS-based. And I'm like, what really draw, draw me to your job application was that you have that coursework. You've kind of made it a minor. And mm-hmm. so yeah. that's important to me because yeah. that's, you know, you don't just pick that up. I right. can't take somebody and, you so know. So like, like uh, digital, being familiar with digital mapping and, and things like that. Mm-hmm. That's Because she would be more like myself. I have done most all of the different kinds of hunting that there are in Iowa and I've done a lot of different kinds of fishing uh and I would much much prefer just a hike like miles prefer just just uh uh hanging out with people being able to talk when you're doing an activity is is a big deal for me so uh, (laughs) deer hunting kills me man it just kills me (laughs) be quiet don't move that's right why are we here how much longer just seven more hours (laughs) Yeah, no. I, yeah, Nick, I never thought of that. You would you would struggle with deer hunting in that regard. Yeah, I did. It was it was like the worst two hunts of my life. I had to deer hunt. That's but funny. you need to take him pheasant hunt or duck that's hunt. That's right. Talk and interview yep. going. 
Pesadoni's not too bad. I've been, you know, we, we have a prairie farm, so yep. we used to go every Thanksgiving, um, and it's fine. But uh, but again, like you're focused on on something else. I'd rather just be able to enjoy like hanging outside. So. Mm. Well, yeah, it's cer- certainly not for everyone, but definitely for guys like Todd and, and myself, we that's what that's what fuels us every day, and that's what we think about all the time. And and uh, yeah, the passion shows through and all of that. And and uh, you know, glad you ended up here in Iowa. It's probably kind of an unlikely uh, circumstance for a guy that grew up in upstate New York, but. Yeah, it's similar. You know, I started working on uh, the neighbor's dairy farm when I was 13 and did that till I was 16. So, you know, we had Mm. a couple cows and horses and, you know, our own farm pond. And yeah, so, you know, it wasn't this wasn't a big stretch. The scale of agriculture out here was different than what I was used to back east. But um, just larger in Iowa, larger. Yeah, much larger. And it was still so. When the glaciers came across New York, it basically took all the topsoil and dumped it down in New Jersey and stuff. So mm-hmm. there isn't, uh, it isn't great crop ground. So that's why you see a lot of dairy. It's still kind of pasture and hay and yeah. mm-hmm. there was some corn. Like soybeans were a new thing to me when I came out here. I didn't, mm-hmm. you know, I drove across to Iowa and went up to South Dakota State to start my graduate stuff. I'm like, what the heck are those? I've never seen that. You know, <laughs> corn was obvious, but I'm yeah. like, what is that stuff? I've never seen yeah. That's it wasn't that common back in New York, so. Well, I got a question. Then we get a lot of people who ask about, um, like, what would be a good native warm season grazer, or like forage for, um, uh, for cattle. Um, would you have any input on that? I, you know, any of the native forages. So the the big difference we see between the forages that a lot of the livestock people use today, they're they're C three plants, and a lot of those come from Europe, and so they have an early green up, and then they mm. kind of senescence in the summer during the hot months. Whereas our native prairie is a C four grass, and so they tend to come a little bit later in the spring, but they tolerate the heat very well, and that mm-hmm. is their active growing period. So mm-hmm. I think you know from a from a grazing standpoint, a lot of literature out there uh, already on it. Um, the native grasses, you want to graze them more early and hit mm-hmm. them pretty hard then. Because if you let them get to full size, then they do get very stemmy yep. and, you know, they kind yeah. of lose their nutritional value. But there's yeah. a lot of, you know, there's some cool season natives, you know, that can like June grass and some other Wild things. Wild like that. Yeah, yeah. Things that can, you know, be a, a little bit more palatable than things like switchgrass or big blue. I mean, they're also very good. You just got to hit them early. And so. Okay. I was, I had one guy say that he had, he bailed his big blue, um, but he had to do it before it, uh, the seed headed out mm-hmm. and then, and then the cattle like it. And if you let the, if you let it go to seed then the cattle don't, they don't want to touch it, but yeah. Oh, interesting. Yeah. 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 That is, that's really good insight there. Well, uh, you know, the, there's parts of your job that, that, um, are probably just downright difficult. Um, and this is, I guess we're kind of transitioning here in the interview a little bit. Um, the, you talked a little bit about the roadside survey. I think it's a phenomenal test. I guess we could say a sample, a scientific test to, uh, gauge what our, uh, not just our pheasant populations are in the state, but quail and uh, cottontails, Hungarian partridge. Uh, doves make it into that as well, or is that through? That's well. There's the new harvest reporting on doves now that just came out this this past season. I think this 
2022 season. Um, they used to send out a survey uh, before that, but now it's uh, just a mandated thing. If you hunt doves, you gotta you gotta report on your harvest. Um, but is there anything else that goes into that roadside survey? Pheasants, quail, cottontails. I suppose jackrabbits. Jackrabbits and huns. Those the yep the five critters <clears throat> that we count on the roadside. Yep. Now people, you'll see it all the time in the Facebook comments. That's where you go to find the smartest information in the world, right? The Facebook comments. Oh, all they do is look at the birds that are on the roads. If they saw how many were on my back 40, that they'd see that number was way off. Or the government just does the roadside survey, so that way the numbers look lower than what they are so they, don't, they can make the season short. You know, all, every variable of whatever complaint. Can you give us a quick explanation for why this is a good test? Sure, sure. So... I mean, with any wildlife species, it, you know, we can't count them all. I mean, right. they're adapted to not be seen for the most part. So, I mean, we're always talking about indexes, but indexes can give you real good information on population trends. And with some assumptions, you can even talk about densities and stuff if you want to. So, so the roadside survey is something that was actually developed in Iowa about in the 1930s. Um, a lot of you know science improved and everything it it did make some bounds and it was actually uh, improvements and whatnot and so in 1962 some smart people at iowa state kind of standardized it hmm. and you know looked at some of the data and when the counts seemed to yield the best results and so we've been doing it basically the same way for over half century now so gives us a real good trend indicator um you know our other way what can we compare our counts to well the other big survey that happens every fall is hunters go out there and harvest birds mm -hmm. so i mean they're going across every county in the state private land public land you know mm -hmm. harvesting birds and so one of the things we do at the end of the season is we take a, a sample of those hunters and send them a postcard and ask them how many days you hunt how many did you shoot you know those kinds of things where were you hunting we ask it not just for pheasants, but all our small game. And, you know, I get that data back. Mm -hmm. So I can plot that data. Well, how many birds do we harvest? Well, how's that compared to the roadside counts? Well, the two actually mirror each other pretty yeah. well over the last half century. So I think the roadside survey is a pretty good tool. Yeah. Granted, I can't go in everybody's back 40 and count the birds. Right, but right. the premise of the roadside survey is if we... Do the survey at the same time of the year, under the same conditions, on the same routes. That should be reflective of if birds went up, we mm. should count some more. Mm -hmm. If birds went down, we'll probably count less. So now, I'm, not, I'm not seeing all the birds, but that gives us a real good trend indicator. Now, did the birds go down because of weather or habitat? The survey's not designed for that. We're mm -hmm. just tracking trends, but we know mm -hmm. that they went down or went up. And so... Yeah. So there's no, you're not really tracking variables or anything. You're just tracking up or down, and you're not even necessarily tracking actual numbers. You're just tracking plus or minus. The trends, yep, but those are really reflective of what's going on in the population overall. Yeah. Now, there's, you know, science has improved a lot since the 60s. So, like I said, there's some things we can do now that just actually wrapped up a multi-state study with Iowa State and states as far away as Washington and Idaho wow. and Kansas looking at roadside counts and... Mm -hmm. And so there's this thing we talk about detection, you know, and the, the thing with detection is when we're doing a survey to really compare one year to the next is the detection changing. That's the one big thing that would might throw a survey like this off. 
Mm-hmm. So if one year 20% of the population's on the road and the next year 50%'s on the road, well, then that really makes it hard. Are you seeing a change or did just more birds be on the road that particular year? So we did a big study with that across multiple states, the Dakotas, Iowa, Kansas, like I said, all the states that want to participate. We had a dozen states, I think, across the pheasant range that wow. participated. Yeah. Um, and we found that actually that detection probability was very narrow, didn't vary a lot. It did vary some from like, say, about 18% to maybe 33%, but that's a pretty narrow range. So mm-hmm. basically it averaged right around 23 25% most of the time. Wow. So that's actually good from a roadside survey yeah. standpoint. We know that the changes we're seeing are really related to habitat and weather. Now, we don't collect that stuff when we do the survey, habitat and weather, but NOAA collects that data year-round, mm-hmm. and USDA collects kind of habitat information along with a bunch of other folks. Mm-hmm. So I can take that data, and we can look at what's going on along the routes and see how that correlates to what we're seeing with populations. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. The population statistics is wild to me with humans that have that have like a you know an awareness and they can count themselves as a person like that's one thing but i remember being in middle school and someone coming to our uh school no it was driver's ed someone came in and talked about deer and they said like i was a parent population is supposed to be 150 to 180,000 and i don't know how true this is but uh and then they said but we're closer to 300,000 this was like 10 years ago 10 years ago, man, I'm getting yeah. old. Yeah, <laughs> you are. Uh, and uh, how, how in the world do you even start to guess a number like that? Do you just go to the hunters and be like, how many deer did you see this year? And then you have an algorithm that you multiply that by? Or Well, I mean, for deer, we do a similar thing. So we do a spotlight survey in the spring. We actually have so many bow hunters out there. We actually ask them to keep the logs, mm-hmm. which, Ken, I think you were talking about that maybe yeah. before the show. Yep. And so we got all these bow hunters out there sitting in a tree. I'm like, well, why don't we ask them how many deer they saw while they were sitting there? Yeah. So we actually take that data and roll it up statewide into deer per thousand hours in the tree, basically. Mm-hmm. We got about 9,000 hunters statewide that keep these diaries for us. So yeah. we can even break it down into regions. Per thousand. And then you multiply how far, or they, you figure out how far they can see in distance-wise, and then you're like... Well, we don't do much with that. It's just that's just kind of a trend index. I mean, when we're when we're when we're doing the spotlight survey ourselves with staffs, we do that because we know how far the spotlights shine, and so you can get a transect width, and actually you can come up with density estimates when you make some assumptions about that kind of stuff. So, but I mean, we get a lot of deer that are killed on the roads by vehicles. Yeah, DOT has to pick them up, so that feeds into our population model. So we have hunter harvest roadkill information, the spotlight survey, the bow hunter survey. I mean, we put that all together, and we've got a pretty good idea of what yeah. our population is doing, and we can even come up with potential densities. What about the population data they have for, like, buffalo, like, <clears throat> 400, 500 years ago? You know, back when, like, settlement was just starting or right before that, when they're like, they estimated, like, 60 million buffalo, you know? Where are they coming up with that kind of number? I mean, I believe them, you know, but... It's uh, so, you know, I've seen some numbers like that with passenger pigeons in Iowa before, you know, and, and so basically just some good people at the universities just take the, the notes that were recorded then because mm-hmm. obviously nobody was doing surveys and actually wildlife science wasn't even a science at that point. Yeah. So, but, you know, 
You've got records of people saying a flock of passenger pigeons flew over Dubuque and it started at six o'clock in the morning and it finally wrapped up around one o'clock in the afternoon and it was this wide and went for that long and they just did some math on that. Does like, yeah, yeah. that's wild. Yeah, yeah. so there's, so it's the same thing with bison and stuff. You know, there's records of the herd and you know that it went just for like six diaries months. and stuff yep. like that. Wow. Yeah, so if you find something like that in your family records, you know be good to have someone take a look at that from the state so they can, you know, get that perspective because it might include some really valuable information that helps pinpoint that number a little bit better. Like Nick suggested there, it's just, it's, it's pretty tough to get, you know, from, you know, fossil record helps of course. And, and fossil record can be more than just bones. It can be, you know, fossilized tracks sometimes or, but also those eyewitness accounts are, are very valuable for sure. You know, one other thing I want to add here too. So we see how accurate these surveys are. But the naysayers that complain about it, if you were to ask them, well, do you want state uh, officials to have license to just walk out onto your property whenever they want to make sure they count every single one that you're seeing every morning? Uh, the answer uh, in that crowd of people, I'm going to say, is going to be a no 100 times out of 100. And so the surveys are a nice, unobtrusive uh, way to get that data. And as Todd has shown, you know, we have multiple ways of showing the, the uh, uh, reliability of that data uh, for as far as uh, what, you know, it's showing what we think it shows. And uh I think it's pretty accurate. And then, you know, go back to the beginning of this conversation, you look around the room, you can see the evidence of, of healthy wildlife populations here in, in our state. Well, something else that you and I have talked about um, in the past, and this really came out of our original jackrabbit conversation, and we've already heard some of that. Um, you referenced a book to me that is one of the best books I've ever read, A Country So Full of Game really a history of our uh, state's wildlife um, that uh, does such a nice job going through. Obviously, can't cover every species, but a lot of the the most iconic species that people think of uh, when they think of the prairie states. Talks about bison, talks about um, uh, jackrabbits, talks about... Uh, lynx and bobcats L, and elk chickens yep yeah. yep and uh you know all these incredible critters can you give us kind of a rundown of if somebody had just crossed over the mississippi river coming from the east uh, and they're coming into iowa those pre-settlement era you know maybe the french fur trapper era you know, the very first Europeans to, to see the country. What kinds of things would they be seeing? Like, give us kind of maybe a general population. Like, there would have been a lot of these. There wouldn't have been that many of these, but there'd be some of these. Like, just maybe some of the, you know, top ones you think of. Well, obviously, I wasn't alive back then either. So all <laughs> I can do is like, you know, like I've read the book and, and a few others like that. Mm-hmm. And so it's really based off that. Some of Leopold's work and then Dr. Dinsmore with A Country So Full of Game did a really great mm-hmm. job of kind of condensing it into a single book. But, you know, when you look at the early pioneers when they crossed the Mississippi and come into Iowa, even before it was platted out or anything, I mean, 
one of the first comments that, that I saw about, you know, north central Iowa and up through there was it's just this colossal wasteland of grass and there's wetlands everywhere and it's hard to get through and there's lots <laughs> of bugs and, and but, you know, there was waterfowl and upland game birds like nobody's business, mm. which is probably not a surprise. So and then when you got to the forested areas, you know, obviously there was a lot of Mature oak timber, obviously elk, bison, deer uh, were our primary ungulates through there. We probably had actually more elk and the stuff that I've read than bison. Mm. Um, We did have some woodland bison. I mean, we say bison and people think kind of the plains herds that numbered in the millions. They don't, you know, the stuff I've read doesn't think that was the case in, in Iowa, except up in the northwest part, it sounds like we did have kind of some of that similar plains type stuff. But when you got over into this part of the state, over toward Dubuque and those areas, more woodland bison, so maybe smaller herds, but that probably elk were mm. super abundant. You hear a lot of records, and a lot of the towns in Iowa have keep even that Elkton, Elk River. You yeah. Know? So it's amazing when you look across the cities of Iowa, how many have elk in them. Yeah, that's true. It tells you historically, you know, how important the, the early you know, pilgrims used uh, deer and elk. So some of the records we read, prairie chickens were just super abundant, um, something that, you know, the, the the early settlers used a lot. I mean, it wasn't like there was grocery stores or anything else. I mean, you kind of provided your own needs. And so mm-hmm. those were a common species. Um, quail were not very abundant from what we can see from the original records. They really kind of took off, like when we started settling the state, much like jackrabbits did, actually made a much more favorable environment for quail when we early started farming mm. than at settlement. And, of course, and, pheasants weren't here at all. I mean, pheasants right. came in when prairie chickens kind of collapsed. And Can you explain the quail thing? Because that's a really cool story, like the jackrabbit, too. Well, so the thing with quail is they're kind of that edge species and they really like disturbed ground. Um, So, you know, when you look at the early reports of quail in Iowa, they were kind of mostly down in the southeast and they were kind of, you know, prairie fires were there. The Indians set fires. There was natural fires. But so quail kind of hung out on that. The fires would burn into the woods and then the fuel would go away. They didn't have the grass and so the fires would go out. And so there was this kind of transition zone right there in that grassland forest you know bare ground Mm -hmm. a lot of shrubby component shrubs were the first things that come in some of the trees die and the grass would eventually creep so that's kind of what quail really thrived in it just wasn't that big of an area well then you have settlers come in and of course they have to build houses so the first thing they're doing is cutting trees down they got heat those houses so they need firewood Mm -hmm. you know i think there were some buffalo chips and stuff burned originally but that kind of got when buffalo went away that source went away so you're mostly Mm. talking wood so they're clearing the forest which kind of comes back to a brushy component that worked Mm -hmm. really well for early succession well yeah bare ground and not, not a lot of grass now, in the prairies, we had them start breaking out some of that prairie, start planting small grains in it, which was ideal. You don't get any better cover for quail than small grains. Mm. High energy food source. So quail like exploded from wow. 1830s to 1890s. Wow. I mean, there's records that they were so abundant that the way they trapped them and shipped them off to market. Now, remember, there's no hunting seasons. They were hunted year round. They were shipped to Chicago and New York. But I mean... I've read reports where the settlers just put a net across the field, and they were so abundant, they just walked across the field, and they'd all pile into this net and wow, wow ship that's them off crazy. to 
And and also, uh, wasn't there a hedgerow component to that too? Or? There was, and so the early settlers didn't have a lot of money, and so barbed wire was kind of a new invention and very expensive, so they basically used kind of anything that was thorny. So they planted Osage Orange Hedge was one of the kind of things that was very mm-hmm. hardy, thorny. So it's like a natural fence, and that happened all the way up to the Minnesota border. So here you took the northern part of Iowa that was treeless, and put brushy hedgerows all the way to the Minnesota border next to small grain fields and everything. I mean, quail just, boom. I mean, we had quail in northern Iowa in the 1800s. Matter of fact, they even ventured up into Minnesota, and they weren't native there historically. Yeah, Yeah, that that was something interesting. You know, I had that conversation a few times up at Pheasant Fest because, uh, you know, not to knock any, any casual you know observer of nature or anything like that but uh, a lot of people don't understand that background about quail and be like, oh yeah i think we probably still have some quail around here in minnesota it's like well just like the pheasant they're, they're not from here originally that's because of uh because of how you know habitat uh changed so much and now land use change yeah. is refragmented again and now we're probably pretty much back to what was normal in a, in a in large part for Bob White quail here in the state, we're kind of the northern edge now, again. But yep, southern third of the state is our prime range, and that's kind of where they were found from the records we've read settlement wise. Yep. Yeah. So, you know, just just fascinating things in, in that way to consider, and and uh, you know, you you alluded to this a little bit. And I want to. This is one of the things I enjoy talking about you talking about with you the most is your knowledge is in far more than just upland game biology you have bits of you know uh, geology and and uh, forestry and everything else thrown in there the rivers uh, in Iowa that's something we haven't talked a lot about yet in this series we talked a little bit with Dr. Benedict but a very unique thing about Iowa is we're bookended by our two biggest rivers, which eventually become one just south of our border. And uh, how would that have shaped those? So maybe, you know, we obviously the main idea here of this podcast is to talk about prairie, but we had some more riparian wooded parts to our state too at that time, right? At, at the pre-settlement era. Would those areas just have been pretty vast, swampy woodlands along those rivers, would you expect, at that time? Um, Well, you kind of got to think about it. You know, I try to, you know, for folks that aren't wildlife biologists, I try to frame it, you know, go back to, you know, Wild Kingdom and stuff and think about those shows you've seen on Africa and stuff. Mm -hmm. So you got to remember, we had a lot of elk. We did have some bison. We still always had deer and turkey, bear, mountain lions, all wolves. You know, all those critters were here at that time. And mm-hmm. so stuff that we see is probably, even with the turkeys, I find it cool to, to read about them. That, you know, in the wintertime, probably everything did condense around those woody corridors, especially things like elk, bison. You know, we got mm-hmm. big storms on the prairie, and so this is where they could graze, and snow didn't maybe get quite as deep. Oh, of course, really? it had the That's water. Fascinating. So, you know, concentrating those animals probably had an impact yeah. on that structure and kept it more open than probably what we see sure. today when most of our woodlands just sit idle and they can kind of, you know, whereas yeah. annually they usually got probably hit pretty hard. And so mm. I wouldn't expect that they, you know, I think there was some thickness, you know, because I think what happened in the spring and summertime is a lot of those animals went out on the prairie. Mm-hmm. You know, you had Indians setting fire. The Indians were pretty wise to the fact that 
you know, when you burn something in the spring, it actually wasn't attracting because you got that really flush green growth growing, no old vegetation, very high nutrition. Yeah. I mean, they weren't dumb. They knew, you know, how to kind of draw animals to them rather than, you know, kind of trying to just go out and chase the animals. So, Mm -hmm. of course, there was natural fires that did that too, lightning or whatever. But, um, yeah, yeah, I think it, you know, I think the dynamic that was happening here in the Great Plains was not all that different than what you see in Africa when you watch Mm -hmm. kind of that natural environment over there with wildebeest. And, you know, we were obviously we're in a northern climb, so, you know, you do have that snow impact. But um, I've got records here along the Boone River, you know, like, it was in Dinsmore's book, I think, or another publication I read that, you know, they had a bad winter and, like, the, the, the last elk disappeared from central Iowa here along the Des Moines River in, like, around 1840. Hmm. They had a really bad winter and settlers were out and actually could kill them with a pitchfork. The snow was deep enough they could just yeah, walk I do up remember and use them like for that. a food source, yep. and, you know, which was really important to the settlers at the time, but gives you some of the dynamic that you know probably was going on before you know we got here yeah that those stories changed my whole outlook on the extirpation of a lot of the game species you know when you read the frivolous stories like what you're talking about with the netting quail and especially the horrible accounts of what happened with the passenger pigeons and just total exploitation there and, and wanton, a lot of wanton waste, you know, killing way, no refrigeration at the time, you know, killing way more than they knew they could preserve to, to get to market. Well, I think they, I don't know that they necessarily wasted them. They, they got sent to market. So, you know, we didn't have freezers or anything. So everything was salted and stuff. It's That's just, true. Yeah. You know, you got to put yourself back in that time. There was no electricity. I mean, you know, yeah, there were some stores on the East Coast and, you know, kind of civilization. But, I mean, when you got out here, I mean, you were kind of defending for yourself and, you know, that mindset that all this is boundless. Right. Like, it's just going to keep going. But There were no population surveys at the time, and and people didn't understand those different ecological relationships. Mm-hmm. But, but it was especially the stories where it would be someone had written in their – journal their personal journal or diary from way back in that time they'd talk about you know there was however many feet of snow which you know that could be part of this conversation as well we don't have winters like we did back then near as often now um but but i remember reading this one account i think it was actually uh from mahaska county nick um if i remember correctly uh it was the the wife mother of the family uh, walked outside in the winter to, you know, get a couple sticks of firewood or something. And she saw two deer uh, huddled up against the side of their house, you know, snow that was multiple feet deep. And they were, it was such a brutal winter that these deer were struggling too. And uh, she killed them with an ax. Uh, Imagine getting the drop on two deer and killing them with an ax, you know, and what you realize then when you read those stories or the story of the elk that you mentioned was these people were, they were desperate too. They were just like, they were, they were maybe a step ahead of those two deer hunkered down next to their cabin, just trying to stay alive, you know, and, and, uh, not having the food preservation methods like we do today. Certainly they had some canning, salting, that kind of thing, curing, but, um, it, it was, these we shouldn't say new arrivals because native americans were here so our species was present 
However, not in near the abundance and all of a sudden everyone's got to be fed and there just weren't enough resources. And you know what, if you're a guy like, like Todd and you love hunting and uh, you find out, wow, I can literally go hunting every single day and people will pay me for it. The blacksmith, he can't go hunting every day cause he's busy, you know, fixing horseshoes and you know, wagon tongues and everything else all day long. I bet you he'd pay me, you know, a nickel for, a, a jar of uh, canned deer meat. And so you'd read accounts in this book of um, guys going, you know, out into, you know, in a season shooting, you know, 100 deer. And, you know, they were just selling it all. That was their way of making a living. Mm-hmm. And thankfully, guys like Todd are, you know, a part of our community now that do these population studies that look at these relationships between these organisms and uh, we can preserve a resource now. And obviously, you know, um, some, you know, Nick and I will knock a big ag on the podcast often, but that is one good thing that has come out of our, our agriculture development is that we have made it easier to feed people. However, I think we've gone too far in that. <laughs> this is me speaking here, not Todd. He's, he, he's, a, he's a government official. But, but uh, uh, I think we've gone too far in that extreme as well, you know, and we're abusing the land in a different way in many ways. But, but um, you know, it's all within balance, and we have, to, we have to consider what our actions, you know, what the ripple effect is of our actions. We used to have so much meat. Every guy could kill a hundred deer, and now we got rid of all the meat, and now we grow soybeans, which we turn into fake meat called tofu. <laughs> and <laughs> I don't see the difference. No, <laughs> no, there's there's definitely uh, parallels that we can draw there more than I think we realize as far as how things have have uh, played out. But but um, it is interesting to consider that. You know, the other big thing, and you mentioned this for your home state, New York, glaciers were a big part of. Um, how Iowa ended up being a prairie state. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that, too? Well, sure. There's been several glacial advances that have come across Iowa. Of course, the most recent one, 10,000 years ago, kind of really impacted the north-central, northwest part of the state, mm-hmm. kind of the Des Moines low. Um, mm-hmm. I'm sure any student that's gone to school in Iowa is kind of familiar with our geology yeah. and stuff. And so our newest soils... Um, you know the the soils of up from that glacier obviously one of the things the first settlers were shocked at when they come into iowa was there was no rocks yeah that's i mean true. if you think about new york ohio valley i mean mm-hmm. well, the, you know they had to get the trees out of there and then you had to get all the rocks before you could even start farming it Gosh, you came to Iowa, drop a match, you're like, good to go. They thought they died and went to heaven. That's right. Um, you know, so, yeah, I mean, that that's what kind of really made probably Iowa explode, Illinois as well. You know, Minnesota, just coming out here, that glacial advantage and not having that rock to deal with. And, and obviously a lot of it treeless mm-hmm. was even better. I mean, you're talking about standing behind a horse, you know, pulling pulling a plow. So, I mean. Yeah. That was really big for them, but yeah, I mean, so that really shaped our our uh, our landscape in Iowa. So some of our oldest soils are kind of up northeast Iowa on the 
uh, in that region where you actually do see rock in Iowa, one of the few yeah, places right, that you yep. do see it. Um, you know, but we did have glacial advances before that. It's just they were many thousands of years before the most recent one. So our flattest soils are the most recent one. The glaciers come down, you know, kind of those chunks of ice melted. That kind of gave us our pothole, you know, because it didn't all melt evenly. And, of course, we mm-hmm. made the Des Moines River Valley and, you know, obviously the Missouri River and the, and the Mississippi River drained those glaciers as they retreated. Mm-hmm. Um, the, Lus, the Lus Hills on the western side of the state was the sand deposits blowing off those huge wetlands you know that you know this didn't happen overnight it was over courses of thousands of years and so Mm. you know at some point way back then the Lus Hills were like big sand dunes at that time Mm -hmm. you know obviously now we see them all vegetated and uh, it's a very productive soil as well so you get into southern Iowa's kind of those soils are from the glacier that was you know whatever before that many thousands of years and so a lot more weather on them, so they are eroded a little bit by rainfall through time, but still fairly productive soils. But obviously our soils up in northern Iowa are very productive mm-hmm. from the most recent glacier and kind of drove the, the whole book there. Yeah. Uh, a country so mm-hmm. full of game, that was a very productive environment. Very flat, a lot of water. Wetlands make very good soils, really high organic matter, native prairie, deep roots, kind of just maximizes that organic matter in the soil so yeah Mm -hmm. when folks came here and started breaking up our prairie soils and planting it was like oh my god this grows twice of what we ever saw you know Mm. when we came from ohio or whatever so yeah yeah i mentioned earlier my in-laws are from new england and uh new hampshire to be specific and you can walk into every single a patch of forest up there, which by <laughs> now is 90% of the state service area is forest. Um, and at one point it was flip-flop because they tried to farm out there. And uh, the first, you know, Europeans that were coming into the new world at the time. And uh, you walk into any timber up there and you will find stone walls. Uh, so just these long stretches of, of fencing made out of stones like Todd was talking about. And so in New Hampshire, the granite state, they didn't have giant, you know, rocks everywhere that they wanted to farm. And so they would pick these stones up and they'd turn them into fencing for their livestock, you know, that they'd graze out there. And uh, you can just see that evidence of a gone, long gone era. Hmm. And uh, it, it exactly shows the, you know, what, what Todd talked about there is people moved this way and, and found that production. And then I also thought of something else too. Nick talks about this frequently and Bob St. Pierre actually talked about this clear back in one of our first podcasts. When you go to a prairie, there's so much life abundance, you know, there's, uh, from, from of course the plants themselves to the insects and, and the birds and the mammals and, and, uh, you can just see the how it's teeming with life. And, uh, you know, going back to Dr. Dinsmore's book, um, it's such an apt title, A Country So Full of Game. You know, it's so full of life, all of that abundance from, and it started with that rich soil that was donated by the states north of us mm-hmm. uh, through the uh, efforts of glaciers that stretch down here. But, but uh, yeah, just a, a fascinating thing. I think... Something I wanted to ask you before, I don't know if you're trying to wrap up here in a second, but we had a podcast 
uh, recently where one of our guests, very, uh, very smart guy said, and, and knows a lot in his field, but he was saying that um, the issue with creating a bunch of habitat for wildlife is that if you don't put water there with it, then the wildlife won't hang out there. Uh, and I was thinking about that later and I was like, I, I don't know if I agree with that. Um, but I'm curious, what, what's your take? Like if someone put in 200 acres of CRP or prairie or something, but they don't have like a pond or something, you know, right nearby, uh, what kind of wildlife do you guys see in that area? Um, you know, it kind of depends on what your goals are for, you know, if you want to attract wildlife, obviously if you want waterfowl, you need water. But if mm -hmm. you think about things like cottontail, squirrel, pheasant, quail, they basically get the water, the daily water they need from the insects and the plants. They, they really don't need free water. So it's, mm -hmm. um, you know, it really depends on what you're trying to do. You know, deer would need some free water, turkeys, probably not. Um, mm -hmm. you know, now if we get in drought years and that kind mm -hmm. of stuff, will they go to water? Oh yeah, absolutely. And so, um, yeah, it really depends on what you're managing for. I mean, if you want ducks and geese and you obviously need some water and obviously deer and stuff, but I mean, they're willing to travel quite a way. So it's not like, and a lot of times they can get a lot of their water needs from what they eat as well. And so it's mm -hmm. not like they probably need to drink every day either. So mm -hmm really depends on what you're trying to attract. I would say, no, it's when you think about Iowa, we're not really a water limited state. Now, if you go out to states like Wyoming or California and this, you know, in the valleys out there where they can get dry weather, there's good documented research that they don't get good pheasant populations unless they put big irrigators out or things mm -hmm. like that, you know, then they get much more bug response and then they get much better pheasant populations. Yeah. So it really depends on where you're at as yeah. well. But generally, when I think about Iowa and our productivity as far as growing crops and the rainfall we get, we're not really, I don't really view wildlife here as water limited. Mm -hmm. Now, if you want to, if you're a duck hunter and you want to have lots of ducks and geese in your property, you better have some water. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Yeah. And the other thing too is we can become so focused on those game species that we forget about all the other life that needs to exist in that prairie yeah and those are not bound to a creek bank or a pond or or a river or lake or whatever they're throughout you know there there's pollinators throughout a prairie and so having grassland not just around water areas is incredibly valuable in uh how it helps with those other species that that uh call a prairie home yep absolutely well, you know, as we uh, wrap this one up, in your time, you've been here since the ethanol mandate came out in 2006, 2007, sometime around then. Guys that are hardcore upland hunters talk about they saw that marked difference within those first couple of hunting seasons. I was changed probably quite a bit since you've, you've started working here. Um, can you maybe describe that a little bit and then we'll wrap it up with you kind of giving your view into the future, what, what you hope for Iowa, what you, you know, kind of what you're predicting as far as, uh, preserving our, and, and even restoring some of our prairie, we've lost almost all of it. Um, just kind of your thoughts there. 
Yeah, I mean, so, you know, CRP was started in 1985 to address low crop prices, and it's been around ever since. So, um, you know, I usually call it the greatest conservation success story this program this Hmm. country's ever seen. Just one of the few programs that actually goes out and changes the landscape. Mm -hmm. Actually put enough CRP out there that we can see more ducks, we can see more turkeys, we can see more pheasants. I mean, that's just kind of the impact that it had. And so... Really popular program. Of course, it's always got people kind of shooting at it. And, uh, you know, so we've there's been changes to it through time, I think, to target it better. And so I think we've made some really good strides. And so, but there's still folks that like to take shots at it. So well received by landowners. So, you know, I hope that program continues. I think it will continue in the next farm bill. So that's good. But as you mentioned, you know, we kind of had renewable fuels come on. Oil can't last forever. So, you know, we've got some pretty smart people in the country looking at, you know, what our alternatives are. And so, you know, biomass was one of them and corn ethanol being one of the first ones, um, you know, basically moonshine. We've been making yeah, it a long time. That's right. So, yeah. you know, uh, it wasn't like it was brand new technology. We just made it more efficient. Um, <laughs> you know, but there's talks about, you know, maybe one of the better things to do is, you know, I think when you looked at the renewable fuel standard when it first came out, it was like, this is the first step because we can do it. But the next step would be, something that's more sustainable like yeah. biomass can we convert that into ethanol i mean there's a lot of stored energy in plant tissue beyond sugar sugar is mm-hmm. the easy thing to convert to energy yeah um, yep. but everything in the plant is yeah. sugar based it's just when you start getting into lignans and the structures of the plant they're much more tougher to break down mm-hmm. and turn into a sugar but mm-hmm. you know that's basically the structure a plant has so sure. yeah so if you could, you know, some of the the next phase of the RFS was going to more like this plant-based ethanol, not so much corn-based or soybean-based mm-hmm. um, energy. And so sure. I would hope in the future that we still stay on that track because mm-hmm. that's much more sustainable ecologically mm-hmm. than what we're doing with corn. I mean, you know, you yeah. can plant it once, harvest it for a decade, you know, yeah. it comes back every year, you manage it well, we might have to do some... You know, now there's all the logistics that come along with that. You know, how do you store that kind of stuff? How do you transport it? You know, but I think we can we can work on those things. So, you know, I kind of hope some of that thought continues. You know, we've seen a big development in wind energy. I mean, Mm -hmm, Iowa's one of like the first or second state in the country, I think, for wind generation. So yeah, we do a good job in terms of percentage of our uh, intake being wind energy, renewable wind energy. So we're seeing that, and I think you're seeing the auto industry starting to shift. I mean, the shift seems to be Mm -hmm. more toward electric vehicles, and that seems to be the future. So what does that mean for things like ethanol? And so two days ago, they had a press conference. Tesla had a big press conference where I think Elon Musk basically broke down in layman's terms the math on what it would take to have solar energy power, you know, some huge percentage of the United States energy and basically just trying to convince the population it can't be done. We recently bid on a 900 acre job for, but it's not, it's not native prairie. It's just red top and oats. Um, but it's for sol a solar area. It's, um, I probably shouldn't say what it's for, but it's just a giant Southeast Iowa. It's just this giant area where they need a massive amount of energy. And so they're building, you know, almost a thousand acres worth of solar out in that, in that area yeah 
It'll be interesting to see the dynamic. I don't know that I can crystal ball it right now, but, you know, I guess my hope is from, you know, in a state like Iowa, we're always going to be a major production state just because of our soils. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're blessed with it here, so we can grow a lot of pheasants. We can grow a lot of corn. You know, we can grow yeah. big deer. And yep. so yeah. um, that's just the nature of our soils. So, you know, I hope things like CRP continue. I think as taxpayers in the country, they want to do more than just provide crop insurance to farmers and give them a check. You know, let's give them a CRP payment. We're still giving them money, mm -hmm. but we're also getting those other benefits so we can help the farmer. You know, they're getting that yeah. check for CRP every year, but yeah. we're also getting some wildlife benefits. And obviously soil and water benefits are probably even way bigger than the and the wildlife benefits to me yeah. the wildlife benefits are just that icing on the cake everybody likes to see some pheasants and quail yep. or you know whatever the critter is come up in the backyard so um you know hopefully that you know that kind of thought process you know we can get it out to the east and west coast that's kind of the unique thing about our country is all the population lives on the edges and mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> all the food yeah. comes here from the middle yeah. and so not sure how educated a lot of those are about you know how their food's produced and what the impacts are and so mm -hmm. but iowa i think is in a fairly good place now we've got pretty good crp enrollment i think more than any state adjoining us which is pretty impressive i think mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and so uh you know i heard pretty good reports on pheasant season this last fall and might even have more hunters coming next year wow. so do you do you feel generally positive or negative about the trend of iowa's um, ecological state? I think we've made improvements, but, you know, there's always this pressure, you know, from, to produce food and stuff. And so, you know, to me, it's, it's always got to be that balancing act. Um, you know, I, I think we can grow food and still have clean water, reduce soil erosion, have good wildlife. I don't mm -hmm. think it has to be one or the other. Yeah. And I look at Very well said. South Dakota and Minnesota a little bit. Minnesota, especially with the 10,000 lakes, they just, they see the value of that tourism. People want yeah. to recreate. And here you hear the things in Iowa about all our young kids leaving. And mm -hmm. do you blame them? I mean, if you come out here to rural Boone County, what is it? It's a big plowed field. I mean, right. it doesn't generate a lot of people wanting to come recreate. And so, mm -hmm. but Minnesota is a great ag state too. So is South Dakota. South Dakota still got 50% of their wetlands still intact. They didn't drain them all like ours, and they're still an ag productive state. Mm -hmm. So to me, I think I don't think it has to be one way or the other. I think it'd be balanced. It just takes the leadership and our legislatures and stuff to, yeah, you know, yeah. make that work. Yeah, yeah, very well said. That is awesome. It takes every individual person. Who, yep. who, uh, yeah, to, I to mean, you know, in. I think. We've got it fairly good, and I don't see our hunters get involved, you know, because, like, you know, pheasant hunting, if you're willing to travel and know what to look for, is pretty dang good. Probably yep. still some of the best in the country. Our deer hunting, could be argued, is some of the best in the country, if not the best. Right. I mean, we've got pretty good waterfowl hunting if you know where to go in the right spots. I mean, our hunters would like more, but... Our hunters are pretty satisfied. Like, yeah. It's not too bad, really. Right. <laughs> you know, yeah. and so I don't, oh, yeah. we don't see them like vocalizing much. Yeah. Um, you know, a... if you're, if you're coming in there after things have gone bad, you're almost a little bit behind the ball. It'd be nice mm -hmm. to see them a little more engaged. And so, hmm. yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, but fair. I don't blame them. It's kind of human nature, right? Yeah. Yeah. If you're not, you know, if it isn't impacting you, it's like we're good to go, right? Yeah. yeah. And that's the whole point of this podcast education. It, hey, 
conservation does affect all of us, you know, to some degree. And so it's, uh, yeah. In fact, it's kind of our, uh, little motto that we end every podcast with, right? Yeah. Nick conservation happens one yard at a time. <laughs>